Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I've had to learn to desensitize myself. I had to become a nerd to having any emotion up or down about these situations. Because for years, all I'd been dealt was intense rejection. Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman started earning his first wage at just three years old. He grew up on a multi-generational family farm in Manuka, Illinois. For a nickel, he'd shovel pig manure with his grandfather, or rake rocks out of the fields, or pull weeds from acres of soybeans. When he got older, he'd drive the combine. But it didn't take long to discover his real talents were found in the woodshed. He learned how to use tools. He built tables and chairs and chests of drawers. Rare was a day you'd see young Nick Offerman without a baseball cap flecked in sawdust. He says life on a farm was like walking a tightrope. It was rewarding if you made it to the other side, but even the slightest change in temperature or change in the market could throw off an entire year's earnings. 
On the one hand, he paints Manuka as idyllic, cornfields and work ethic as far as the eye could see. Yet, there was always this niggling feeling for Offerman, a faint but distinct voice in the back of his mind telling him he was different from the other 767 people in his town, that maybe there was life beyond the barn walls. Life where the people didn't all look like him or think like him, one that was multicolored, vast, and cultured, where the beetles weren't simply pests hindering that year's crop. He says though he loved Manuka, it was located about an hour and 50 years southwest of Chicago. In high school, Offerman was a jock. He played baseball, basketball, and was the captain of his football team. Between that and the carpentry, he says he checked all the boxes of a real man's man. He was the class clown, or as Offerman puts it, a miscreant purveyor of chuckles, always looking for ways to make his fellow schoolmates, farmhands, or congregants laugh with his deadpan sense of humor. He got good grades, but didn't take class all that seriously. But between huddles on the field and barn raising, that voice in his head, the one that wondered what else was out there, started getting louder. And one day, it urged him to try something new. So he walked over to his school's theater department. There, he signed up for the drama club. He joined the fall play and the spring musical. What he'd soon realize was that being on stage gave him a rush unlike anything he'd ever experienced. Where in the rest of his classes, he didn't really care much. In drama club, it became important to him that he succeed. Off the bat, he started getting typecast as tough sheriffs, bad guys, and anti-heroes. And he actually found it therapeutic. He says all the qualities he was raised to eschew because they were considered weak human inclinations, he could get out on stage. He also joined the school's jazz band and started playing the saxophone. In Manuka, Illinois in the 80s, these were not manly pursuits. He says hustling to football practice from, say, a rehearsal for Oklahoma created an interesting dynamic. His teammates gave him grief for learning to potaboure, but on opening night, they were all there cheering him on. Think glee, minus the slushies. By his junior year, Offerman says his main interests were playing saxophone and playing characters on stage, neither of which came up on the ballot of potential college majors. But his girlfriend at the time was a senior. She was a dancer and making the rounds at state colleges that offered performing arts programs. So he accompanied her to an audition at the University of Illinois. While she auditioned, Offerman waited in the hallway, where he happened to stumble upon two U of I theater majors. He says the conversation probably started with them asking him why he was loitering in their hallway with all that dirt on his boots. But it ended with a revelation. Those theater students told Offerman they were headed for the big city after college, Chicago. Because there, you could get paid to act in plays. 
Offerman says in that moment, the world he knew, one populated with only 767 people, exploded. It was an epiphany and a clear point of no return. Learning he could take his favorite thing and turn it into income, and maybe even into a career, was head-spinning. Nobody in his sphere, nor his parents' spheres, had ever attempted a career in the arts by any stretch of the imagination. It was understood in the Offerman household that if you didn't elect to join the family business, you were to take on a noble profession, like a firefighter, a teacher, or paramedic. One single person from his town had studied music in college and ended up coming back to become a high school art teacher. He says that was the extent of Manuka's creativity. But that night, he returned home and decided to inform his parents of his new plan. They told him he was nuts, that his goal was as unlikely as becoming an astronaut. However, they also knew he had inherited a Midwestern work ethic, and whatever he implied himself to, he could achieve. So they decided to support his weird choice, but gave him one piece of advice. They said, while you're chasing your crazy showbiz dreams, make sure you have something to fall back on. You'll need a way to pay your rent. Offerman says he knew he was a puzzle to everyone around him, but he was also learning that his weirdness was a part of himself that was not to be extinguished. So he set the wheels in motion to become a theater actor. Come college application time, Offerman sat down with his guidance counselor to talk options. But the counselor wasn't quite as enamored by his epiphany as he was. They recommended someone with big dreams such as his maybe look into law, more specifically, agricultural law. But that didn't interest Offerman at all. He wanted to go straight back to the University of Illinois and enroll in their acting conservatory. Yet, he says everyone kept talking to him like he declared he wanted to take up wizardry and travel to an alternate dimension. So one day, he drove his station wagon two hours to Champaign, Illinois, to audition for U of I's acting program. He was asked to prepare a monologue, but having never in his life prepared a proper audition, he was unfamiliar with this term. So Offerman stepped onto the audition stage and he performed a scene of dialogue. Yes, Offerman decided to play two characters at once, turning his head from side to side to denote which one was speaking. He also wrote an admissions essay describing his diligence and his burning desire to become as effective a performer as anyone on the Dukes of Hazard. He says looking back, there's no doubt in his mind they knew he had no clue what he was doing. But what they also knew was that they had a hole to fill in their large-scale productions. They needed someone sturdy to, for example, carry the leading lady onto the stage draped across a fainting couch, or pull a cart, or hoist a coffin. Essentially, background players that were strong enough, athletic enough, to carry the show in the literal sense. And standing in front of them was a prime cut of corn-fed background player. So, despite his scene of dialogue, 
and despite his Dukes of Hazard reference point, Offerman was accepted to the University of Illinois theater program in 1988. College for Offerman was a humbling experience. Champaign, Illinois was Paris compared to Manuka, and there were many things he couldn't wrap his brain around. For instance, buses. He said he just felt he couldn't trust buses. He constantly found himself seeking reassurance from the drivers, making them promise they'd keep going down the street until he told them he was ready to get off. It seemed too good to be true. But it wasn't just the transit system that threw him for a loop. The roles of anti-hero protagonists he was used to playing in high school were no longer going to him. Those parts were reserved for the chiseled faces and six-pack abs. He struggled to get cast in any parts of substance. He did land one role as a 92-year-old. He was dipped in gray hairspray and given three lines. But he knew it wasn't just a question of his appearance. Offerman realized he was terrible at acting. Everyone around him had been at the top of their high school class, maybe the presidents of their drama clubs, the stars of the spring musical. He had gone from being a big fish in a little pond to a minnow in the ocean. They were more sophisticated. Offerman had never even heard of Shakespeare before. It was intimidating, and it zapped all his self-confidence. Compared to them, he says he felt worthless, like a nobody. So he started overcompensating. When given a tiny role, he decided he had to make it count. So he stomped instead of walked. He grinned instead of smirked. His only goal became to make himself noticeable at the back of the stage. To sum up, he was trying too hard. And it was obvious. Soon, all the students in his classes broke off into groups and started forming their own acting troops. One troupe in particular was led by his best friend in the class. His friend began writing and directing plays with roles that were perfect for Offerman, but he was never cast. When he asked his friend why his name was never on the call sheet, he simply said it was his duty to cast the best person for the play, and Offerman just wasn't it. He knew his friend wasn't wrong. And it was in that moment that Offerman says his parents' advice really landed. Offerman remembered his parents' parting words when he left for college. They told him that while he was chasing his crazy showbiz dreams, to make sure he had something to fall back on. So as he watched his classmates form many theater companies, he realized for the first time that his homespun roots could be his biggest advantage. Theater companies needed sets. So Offerman breezed in with his calloused hands in his mahogany toolbox and hand-built entire backdrops of scenery. Soon it became clear that what Offerman could offer was invaluable. And he says eventually these troops started throwing him a bone. They'd say, let's give him a few lines. He did build the whole set. Soon those few lines turned into six, then nine. And along with the length of his dialogue, his confidence began to grow. He started realizing there was a part of him in every character. 
a humanity at the core of even the most unsavory roles. And when he could just tap into that, he didn't have to try so hard anymore. Characters didn't have to be broad or virtuosic. Real people were the most compelling. In 1993, Offerman formed his own acting troupe called The Defiant Theater. That same year, he graduated from college. And soon, the boy from a town of 767 people arrived in a city of 2.7 million. Offerman says Chicago is probably the greatest theater city in the country because the people there aren't chasing fame and fortune. They're there because they really just want to put their heads down and make art. Despite it being what his parents described as a terrifying metropolis, he couldn't wait to dive in. The Defiant Theater Company operated exactly the way the name suggests. They were a scrappy troupe that incorporated humor with stage combat and irreverence. Very Monty Python. Offerman was the technical director, which translated to, he owned the power drill. He spent 16 hours a day building sets and making plays. At the time, Offerman could afford only four things. Cigarettes, coffee, beer, and weed. But he didn't want for much more. He says he was living in abject poverty. Dinner was whoever sold the cheapest burrito. And he loved every second of it. 1996 was a good year for Offerman. He started working on plays at bigger and bigger theaters, one of which was called The Steppenwolf. There, he choreographed fight scenes, helped with set design, and even assisted in the makeup department. He'd been earning peanuts, but he says Steppenwolf paid in almonds, even macadamias on two-show days. He mostly played understudies, but eventually he landed his very first lead in The Crucible. That same year, a few Hollywood films were shooting in Chicago and wanted to hire local actors to play small roles. So Offerman landed two scenes in Chain Reaction, a film starring Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman. He couldn't believe he was going to be in an actual movie, one that played in an actual movie theater. Not to mention, those two days on set paid the equivalent of two months' worth of carpentry wages. When the film came out, a giddy Offerman went to the premiere, only to find out both his scenes were cut. The next Hollywood movie that rolled into town was Going All the Way, starring a relatively unknown Ben Affleck and Rachel Weisz. But, once again, all his scenes, except a couple lines shouted in a bar, were cut. Subsidized by his carpentry, at the most, the most, Offerman was making nine grand a year. Yet, he says for a bunch of broke jerks from the middle of the country, he and his friends were surprisingly happy. Until one day, when Offerman was eating, most likely a burrito, he felt something strange. While he was cutting his teeth on the Chicago theater scene, Offerman quite literally cut his tooth. He could feel with his tongue a hole in his back molar so big 
it could fit a whole peppercorn. And he thought, okay, he was now 26 years old. Sure, fitting a peppercorn in his molar was convenient on long hikes, but at some point, he'd need to see a dentist. Through his work on two movie sets, he'd heard about this thing called the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG. SAG is a performer's union that, among other things, provides working actors with medical and dental insurance. He wasn't getting any younger, and that hole wasn't getting any smaller. He says the promise of dental insurance became the tasty-looking carrot pointing him west. So, Offerman decided to do what everyone in his circle called pulling the Schwimmer. Seven years earlier, actor David Schwimmer had co-founded a theater company in Chicago before defecting to Los Angeles to make it in Hollywood. Everyone thought he'd sold out. But Offerman assumed Los Angeles was the greatest gathering of writing and acting talent in the country. That meant it must be as good a theater town as Chicago. So he hopped in his rusty station wagon and pulled the Schwimmer all the way across the country to California. Don't pull the Schwimmer. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chicago, Offerman had managed to get on the good side of one particular casting director. And as a result, that casting director had gone to bat for him a number of times. 
So when he told her he was moving to L.A., she sent him with a list of her contacts. And pretty quickly, a grateful Nick Offerman landed himself an agent who immediately set him up with meetings at networks and studios. So Offerman says he promptly repaid them for their help by falling flat on his face. The executives at those meetings had no idea what to do with his theater resume. He said they'd look at it like it was written in Greek. The only word they recognized was Shakespeare. In Chicago, you got a gig by people seeing you in one play and then putting you into another play. But in L.A., nobody cared about plays. All they wanted was a reel of his film or television work. Not having one meant instant rejection. Offerman says he moved to this place where everything in his life that made him fulfilled and competent and efficacious suddenly didn't count for anything. He says his only saving grace was his farmer mentality. Because he knew better than to buy a lottery ticket and expected to hit, while everyone around him was trying to maintain themselves in a place where you could continue to buy lottery tickets. In 1997, Offerman landed a one-off role on ER. The series was doing a live show and wanted actors with a theater background who were comfortable in front of a live audience. He also played a construction worker on a single episode of a different hospital drama called City of Angels and one episode of The West Wing. He says as a broke actor, every job is a one-off. But those one-offs can change your life because they pay the next six months' rent. He says what's most painful is if you're lucky enough to test for the main cast of a pilot because you've taken the bus to get there and you know if you get the job, you'll make $30,000 a week. If you get the job, your life changes. If you don't get it, you're taking the bus back home. It's absolutely crushing. In 1998, Offerman was up for the lead in a romantic comedy called The Tao of Steve. He did two weeks of callbacks, but it quickly became clear the directors were holding on to him while they continued to search for someone with a longer resume, someone with buzz. And after a while, he got the news. They cast Donald Logue instead. Next, Offerman started going to commercial auditions. And one day, he was sitting in the casting room for a Budweiser ad when he looked around at the other actors waiting to audition. And he realized there were many faces in that room that he recognized. And not from other auditions, but from actual TV and movies. And that's when it hit him. If real, accomplished actors had to do commercials... There was zero hope for him. He walked out of the casting room and straight to a payphone. He called his agent and said he was never doing another commercial audition again. He continued taking on small roles, but they never went anywhere. Casting directors told him to stick it out. Just keep plugging away. Something good will happen. They urged him to watch hours of television and mimic the successful actors but he didn't want to be like anyone else. They told him to try talking faster, be more electric, less deadpan, be more conventional. Another said, 
grow a mustache. Offerman was depressed and lost. He says he just didn't understand Hollywood. And what he did understand, he didn't like. So he decided to go back to what he knew. He brought his tools with him to California. So he filled the time he would have been auditioning for commercials in the woodshed. He says woodworking became the antidote to pilot season. He'd go test for pilots, then immediately speed home to his workshop and just start sanding. And it was a sort of catharsis, because one hour later, he'd be holding the fruits of his labor that no studio or network executive could ever reject. Offerman started building cabins and decks for rent money. Then, in 1999, he got a phone call from his agent. The casting directors from The Tao of Steve were looking to cast a new World War II film called Treasure Island. And interestingly, Treasure Island was a peculiar script, written more like a play than an actual movie. So they were leaning toward hiring trained theater actors. Offerman says the script was hilarious and weird and smart. He was in heaven, and he was hired as the lead. Treasure Island went all the way to the Sundance Film Festival, where it won the special jury prize. Bold it, underline it, circle it. Offerman finally had a real project on his resume. Yet, the following year, he'd reach his lowest point. In the year 2000, Offerman was miserable. His role in Treasure Island didn't lead to any other parts of substance. He was living in an unfinished basement. He was drinking too much whiskey. Every two or three months, something promising would come along, but it would inevitably lead to disappointment. One day, he decided he couldn't handle Hollywood anymore, and he said, I have to do a play. He'd learned L.A. was not a theater town, but he says the stage was his life's blood, his mother's milk. He needed to do a play because if he didn't, he'd be failing. So he started asking around about roles. And those same casting directors who put him up for The Tao of Steve and for Treasure Island came through yet again with a role in a play called The Berlin Circle. The script was quirky, and so was the theater company putting it on. Heaven again. And Offerman was cast as a soldier with a big, wiry mustache. The lead role was filled by an actress named Megan Mullally. She'd just come off her second season playing the high-heeled, high-pitched Karen Walker on NBC's hit sitcom, Will & Grace. Offerman thought, oh great. A serious piece of theater being led by a television actor who drives a Range Rover. And he wasn't the only one. The entire cast and crew avoided Mullally. But after their very first table read, Offerman sat up in his chair and said, that TV lady's a comedy genius. So instead of avoiding her like everyone else, he slid over to talk to her. As it turns out, Mullally was a fellow Chicago theater vet 
with humble beginnings and an impeccable sense of humor, and the two hit it off. And despite the fact he was living in a basement, despite the fact Mullally was the toast of the town and could choose anyone, three months later, she brought Offerman as her date to the 2000 Emmy Awards, where she won Best Supporting Actress. And three years later, the pair was married. Offerman says that play saved his life. Over the following years, Offerman saw more one-offs, like NYPD Blue and Deadwood. He had become a cast spouse on Willing Grace and spent many an hour on set. He says it was the most incredible education to watch top-of-the-line professional artists make every episode for six seasons. When one day, he was approached about playing a role on the show. It was for Grace, a.k.a. Deborah Messing's new boyfriend. The writers liked Offerman, so they invited him to what he calls a cattle call. At the first audition, 20 men were in the waiting room. The next day, there were eight. By the third audition, there were three. Then, Offerman was invited back alone to read a scene with Messing, the producers, and the creator. It started to really sink in that this could be his big break. The producers told him they loved what he was bringing to the scenes. The next day, he got a call. The part went to Woody Harrelson. The writers on Willing Grace really loved Offerman. They wanted his dry sense of humor on screen. So they started writing characters specifically for Offerman on other pilots they pitched. Offerman auditioned for each and every one, which he says was pretty easy because the roles were tailor-made. One in particular felt different. He says he was sporting some freshly groomed whiskers with confidence as he cruised past all the other big-name actors on the way to the network test. But reportedly after he left, the network executives had a problem with his mustache and his resume. They said, let's hang on to him for a couple weeks and see if we can get another actor with a little more juice. Eight weeks later, the part went to James Vanderbeek. Offerman couldn't even land a role that was designed specifically for him. In 2004, he auditioned for the role of Michael Scott on the American version of The Office. But ultimately, famously, Steve Carell was cast. As the show picked up and became wildly popular, Offerman and Mullally would watch it on their couch and just die laughing. Rain Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute on the show, had sat in the same audition rooms as Offerman over the years. He was also a theater nerd, and they were always up for the same parts. Usually, he says, roles with descriptions like weird guy in basement. Watching Wilson score a victory like The Office gave Offerman a sense of hope that if one weird guy in basement could score a home run like that, maybe he could hit this knuckleball as well. If he were to ever make it, it would also be on a show like The Office. So Offerman auditioned for more parts on the series, smaller, eccentric regulars. 
but he was rejected. Little did he know, one of the writers named Mike Schur, who also played Moe's Schrute on the series, liked Offerman. He said Offerman stood perfectly still and said the words as succinctly and straightforwardly as they could be said. They were like missiles coming out of his mouth. Schur said often actors think they need to be memorable in auditions for guest roles by putting a ton of spin on the lines. Offerman was memorable because there was no spin at all. So, even though those roles didn't work out, Mike Schur scribbled Offerman's name down on a post-it note and stuck it to his computer screen. For safekeeping. Over the next four years, Offerman continued to take on small parts, though admittedly in larger productions. He appeared in Miss Congeniality 2, Gilmore Girls, and The Men Who Stare at Goats. Eventually, he and Mullally moved to New York, where they got back to their theater roots. Mullally starred in a Broadway play. Meanwhile, back in Tinseltown, Mike Schur was in the process of co-creating a brand new show. It was about the inner workings of a government office in a small town called Pawnee, Indiana. And the cast would be built around comedy legend Amy Poehler, who would play lead character Leslie Nope. They'd call it Parks and Recreation. Schur was on the hunt to cast a character that would appear in the first two seasons only, named Mark Brendanowitz. He would be the love interest of supporting actress Rashida Jones. And that's when Schur peeled a particular post-it note off his monitor. He said, What about Nick Offerman? Offerman was sent the audition lines, and he and Mullally practiced them over and over in their kitchen. Then he took a deep breath and made his way to the studio. Later that week, Offerman was in a sporting goods store when his phone rang. It was Mike Schur. As it turns out, NBC had vetoed Offerman. They didn't believe there could ever be chemistry between him and Rashida Jones. They said viewers would never buy that match. They wanted someone in the neighborhood of Aaron Eckhart. Rejected yet again. But by the time Offerman was in the sporting goods parking lot, his phone rang a second time. It was sure, again. He said, I still want you. We're going to put you up for a different part. Amy Poehler's character's boss. Mike Schur went back to the network and positioned Offerman as the ideal deadpan boss character. But NBC already had a clear vision for the boss. He was supposed to be 60. Offerman was 38. Yet, Schur insisted. And it was then that Offerman says NBC decided to first look at every other possible actor in the world who spoke English and open up the role to a few who spoke Mandarin as well, just in case there was someone better. The field of possibilities expanded from Offerman to thousands of hopefuls, many with more impressive CVs. Offerman came in to read for the part over and over, but NBC still was not convinced. Months went by. 
then it was down to Offerman and one other actor. Both actors were invited back to the studio, this time to improvise with Amy Poehler. Offerman's heart was pounding. He had to improvise with a comedy icon. Both Offerman's and the other actors' improv sessions with Poehler were recorded. But Schur was so sure that Offerman was the right man for the part that he only turned in one tape. A short while later, Offerman's cell phone rang. It was Mike Schur. After five long months, Offerman was cast as Ron Swanson. He immediately started sobbing. He had no idea that Schur had written his name down on that post-it note five years earlier, and no idea he'd kept it all this time. Just before Offerman's 40th birthday, Parks and Recreation premiered. It would become one of the most beloved cult sitcoms of all time. And Ron Swanson, the small-town, mustachioed, dry-humored, slow-talking, whiskey-sipping, saxophone-playing, woodworking boss of Leslie Nope, would become a cultural icon. starting your career, you emulate your heroes. It might be the way they talk, or the way they write, or the way they move, or the way they dress. You observe every tiny detail, then you weave those strands into your own life. Because when you're green, you don't trust your own instincts yet. Yes, some arrive fully formed, like Marlon Brando, Wayne Gretzky, and Beyonce. But for most of us, it begins with trying to shapeshift into what we think the gatekeepers are looking for. Nick Offerman kept bumping up against that locked gate. He looked more like a plumber than an actor. His gear of choice was deadpan. His humor was Sahara dry. Hollywood wasn't buying what he was selling. What is remarkable is that Offerman chose not to erase his oddness even when he was unemployed and living on cheap burritos in an unfinished basement. He refused to mirror the other 100 hopefuls in those casting rooms. There comes a time in every career where you have absorbed the traits of your heroes, then you put them all into a blender. What pours out is distinctly and uniquely you. Nick Offerman realized that putting more of himself into the roles, rather than less, would make him stand out. And when he performed, he channeled his quirkiness. He didn't have to manufacture it. And that trait caught Mike Schur's eye. And note that Nick Offerman didn't land his biggest role until he was 40. Even mid-career, a massive opportunity can still find you as long as you lean into your gift. His Parks and Rec character Ron Swanson once described bowling in a way that can be aptly applied to Nick Offerman's remarkable ability to stand perfectly still and make you laugh uncontrollably. He said, Straight down the middle, no hook, no spin, no fuss. 
Anything more? And this becomes figure skating. On the wall of Nick Offerman's home hangs a special frame. The object inside that frame is just two inches by two inches. It's the post-it note Mike Schur stuck to his computer screen all those years ago. Nick says it is the most revered tiny square of yellow paper he will ever own. Never, ever give up. Nicholas David Offerman, Seasons as Ron Swanson, 7. Books written, 4. Items for sale in Offerman's Wood Shop, 31. Married to Megan Mullally, 18 years. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. We regret to inform you that the major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.